The first reading is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 9, reading verses 1 to 7 and verse 13. David asked, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. The king said, Is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, There remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. David said, Mephibosheth, he answered, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Amen. The second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, Is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? but they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you will start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Amen. Do you think Jesus cares where you sit at the dinner table? I think it matters to God how the seating plan is arranged. Is it important enough to mean somebody gets killed? This account from Luke's Gospel seems to say yes to all those questions. It comes from a period when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem towards the end of his life. Just before the scene opens, we have this. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. And he said, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This is part of the teaching that emerges as Jesus is on that journey to Jerusalem, knowing that he will be facing his final conflict. That's what's going on. Okay? Three years teaching, whatever it's been, three years traveling around, three years building support, now getting ready to go and have that final confrontation, and Jesus is fussing about who sits where. Eating and eating together do turn up a lot in the story of Jesus, and we're thinking about that over the next few weeks. His teaching and his practice suggest that how we eat, how we organize our eating is an important part of how we live. Our table manners are part of the life of the kingdom. So yes, Jesus does actually care about where we sit and who we sit with. There's a lot going on in this story and we don't have time this morning to unpack it all, but I want to concentrate on just one aspect, knowing who we are. Eating together in this culture that is represented in the story is about more than just taking in nourishment. It's a demonstration and it's a confirmation of who somebody is. And not just who I am, but who you are and who we are. In this context, eating together tells me simply not my own identity, but where I fit into the community, who the people around me are and how we relate. In fact, it demonstrates the community. Eating together in this time, in Jesus' time, is all about fitting in and about being kept out. It has political and religious and social meanings. There are all the rules about who is allowed to eat with whom. Jews and non-Jews do not eat together at this point. That's an important part of keeping the nation uninfected by the Roman Empire. It has a political meaning. Observant Jews and non-observant Jews, the sinners, don't eat together. Holiness, you know, Jesus gets into trouble for eating with the sinners. Holiness is this almost physical concept. If you come into close contact with that which is not holy, your holiness will be compromised. Clean and unclean tend to be the terms that are used. Who you eat with has a religious meaning. And it has a social meaning. Where you sit at the table is a closely monitored way of assigning and receiving and affirming status and standing. It's about prestige and power and identity. Who are you in this community? Where you sit, who you sit with defines who you are and expresses who you are. And the two belong together. 
So in this kind of system, it's technically, technically known to the anthropologists as an honour-shame system. But this, this way of knowing our identity that's reflected in this story is, is a communal thing. Who somebody is in this story is who people think and say they are. Where somebody fits in the social order is where other people say, and it's expressed and negotiated in various ways, including significantly the dining table. Who is present at the table both reflects and depends on who is acceptable and who isn't. And to eat with those who are not acceptable puts you outside the boundaries of, non of acceptability. And where you sit, the places of honour or lower down, is carefully negotiated to demonstrate your position in society as a whole. And getting it wrong, getting it wrong isn't just the mild or even significant discomfort that we might feel when we sit in the wrong seat on the plane and it turns out someone else has got that seat booked and we've got to move. Or we sit in the wrong seat at the theatre, but you've been there and the usher has to come in and go, I'm terribly sorry, you're supposed... It's, that's uncomfortable enough. This is disastrous. This is social disaster. It is claiming, claiming more than your worth. Sitting in a seat that is too high actually diminishes your honour. And it has implications not just for you, but for everyone connected with you, for your family, for your relatives, for those who are part of your whole system. It's a complex and a demanding set of negotiations. Table manners, behaving properly at a mealtime gathering, expresses and reinforces the identity of the individual and of the community. And in a much more relaxed culture where we get together and share meals and we walk along the road or we sit at the table or, or we sit in front of the television or so and we might think this is far from our experience. Except, of course, it isn't. On July the 18th, our parliament debated whether or not to renew Trident. And during the debate, the Prime Minister said, Britain has approximately 1% of the 17,000 nuclear weapons in the world. And she said for us to disarm unilaterally would not significantly change the calculations of other states and all those seeking to acquire such weapons. It wouldn't make any difference if we had nuclear weapons or not in terms of world safety. Ben Howlett, who's an MP for Bath, said later on in the debate, for me, in the interest of national security and to maintain Britain's seat at the top table, it is crucial that strong armed forces are accompanied by a strong nuclear deterrent. To maintain Britain's seat at the top table, being at the table, having a place at the top table is a matter of power and of prestige, of being able to control what is happening and of being seen to do so. And it still matters. This is for illustration only. Other people are dealing with this and it's being sorted. But recently I was invited to a table or at least to join in a task, sharing with others, being part of a community. And then the invitation was withdrawn because it was felt that my presence at that metaphorical table would be contaminating. Because of who I am, because of the, the views that I represent and my practice, I am unsafe to be around. And being at that table would have been dangerous and unhelpful, so I have been excluded. Don't worry about it. This is only by illustration. Okay, it's all been dealt with. It's not a problem. But who you are with still matters. Who you are seen to associate with still matters. Where we sit, who we sit with still shapes, still expresses who we are. And the table manners implied in all of that still matters to Jesus. Because it remains the question of whether we are the people of the kingdom 
of the people who daren't trust the kingdom's invitation. This looks like a series of instructions. Jesus tells people what to do. You should heal somebody. You should choose your seat in this manner. You should choose these people, invite these people. On the whole, the Jesus we meet through the gospel stories isn't given to that kind of instruction as a model of good behavior. His concern is more to do with helping and encouraging and inviting those who want to follow him to dare to trust a fundamental identity given to them from, by being beloved and then finding creative ways to live that out. And so it is here. That's what he's getting at. It's not here's a list of, of instructions to obey, it's who are you? The identity on display in this event is precisely that, it is on display. At the center of this honor-shame system that's being demonstrated and that we know even if we play it out in different ways, is a sense of self and a sense of a place in the community that is shaped by knowing who one is in relation to and dependent on the judgment of others. Who I am in relation to you and who you think I am tells me who I am. That's what's going on right at the beginning of that account. They are watching him closely. That's how it opens. They are watching him closely and lo and behold, there's a man with dropsy. Possibly a plant, possibly the Pharisees had invited him along to see what would happen. Maybe not. But what is happening, as far as the watchers are concerned, is not, will this man be healed? I.e., here is someone in need and we need to look after him. It's, how will Jesus behave? Because what he chooses to do here will demonstrate where he fits and how he has to be understood. The behavior he displays will settle his position in the community. That's what a system like this means. Worth and acceptance. A place at the table is determined by what is seen, by the gaze of those around, those who have the power of inclusion and exclusion. Identity is given by other people's regard. And we give identity by the way we regard, the way we look. And it's constantly under negotiation because it's constantly under threat. Jesus notices that they are choosing, they are in rivalry for the seats of honor. It isn't obvious. They are having to work it out. They're having to negotiate, maybe done by looks and by judicious elbowing and so on. But it's, un it's, it's under threat. You have to negotiate it all the time and compete. Honor is competitive. If I gain honor at your expense, I move up the scale. If I sit in the seat that would normally be yours and others accept me in it, you are diminished. You become less as I become more, and vice versa. It's never a settled system. We need to be at the top table in order to continue to play our part and to be seen to continue to play our part in world politics. And therefore, we must do certain things in order to be accepted there. We have to keep up. We have to have trident because others have trident. Not because we're going to use it, but because others have it and therefore we have to have it. It's all competitive proving ourselves. We will be, be diminished in the eyes of the rest of the world and people won't take us so seriously if we're not in that place of honor. Identity is given through the gaze of those whose judgment we value and the honor that they give to us. We know who we are through the gaze of other people, through where they judge us to be. And this honorable identity 
this acceptable and powerful identity is contagious. If Jesus behaved properly, then they would have accepted him into their table fellowship, and he would be one of the powerful ones, one of those whose words were accepted. He would be protected, he would be included, and he didn't, and he was killed. Where you sit, the seat you achieve and hold on to matters. We need as a nation to be at the top table, to be seen and to have power and to be safe. This isn't honour about people bowing down and saying nice things about us. It's about safety. It's about security. It's about having power to control the world. Political, nuclear world, a war and peace, or our own world, our family, our friendship group, our workplace, knowing who we are and fitting in to the highest place we can and knowledge that is given to us through the judgment and the gaze of other people. This honour-shame system works on the basis of reciprocity of, of mirroring of seeing and be seen by those who are like us and therefore whose judgment will include us the lawyers and the pharisees were judging jesus on the basis of the law the law they all ascribed to is he one of us does he do what we would do can we give him an honored seat because he will behave properly and he doesn't and he refuses the identity that's given and contained within the gaze of the group and he tells people not to struggle to find the place of honour and puts the emphasis on the host. It's up to the host to tell you where to sit, how you belong, who you are. Not a matter of negotiation among the group, depending on the judgments of those who depend on your judgment and compete with you. Jesus is breaking the circularity and the mutual gaze, the mutual looking of this system, the identity he is inviting and challenging them to discover is no longer one dependent on this kind of imitation and competition, but on the way that the host sees us. And in Jesus' shorthand, of course, the host is God, who is then further defined in the next part of the teaching. The host in this model doesn't reinforce imitation and mirroring, but blows it apart completely. See, the identity shaped by the kind of system Jesus is undermining here depends on this mirroring. You have what I want, honour, power, prestige. And if you see me as the same as you, then I too will have honour, power and prestige. That's what it means to be at the top table, to be invited into this charmed circle where it all happens, where what I see in the powerful I want for myself is given to me by the people who have it. And it only works if the people at that table can give me that recognition and the power and prestige, and I give it to them, and we are a mutually regarding community. And Jesus says, don't invite those who can repay you. Invite the ones who can't. That's what it is to live in the kingdom. It's to refuse this closed pattern of mirroring and mutual regard, not to find our identity in that. Instead, it is to know ourselves through the secure and loving and unshakable regard of God. Which sounds easy and comforting until we realize that the ones that God honors are not the honorable ones, but the outsiders and the demanding and the uncomfortable. Jesus cares about table manners. He cares about where we sit and about who we sit with. It's just that in the kingdom, it's not the way we thought it was. Jesus cares about where we sit and who we sit with, but it's not the model that makes us feel at home. 
When David had Mephibosheth eat at his table, it was in part recompense for the damage David had done to his family. It was the recognition that part of David's prestige and power depended on the violence that had been done to Mephibosheth's uh, father and grandfather. And inviting him to the table was in part a way of repayment, but it's also more. In Leviticus's rule for worship, there is this wonderful passage. None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. No one who has a blemish shall draw near. A, bl- a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limp, or a man who has an injured food, foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles, no man of the offspring of Aaron who has a blemish shall come near to the Lord to offer food. Since he has a blemish, he cannot come near to God. Well, that's pretty definite, and it's pretty visible. Not only are the marks that debar someone from approaching the altar easy to see, the fact that someone is debarred is easy to see. And as king, David is in some way connected to the presence of God among the people. He prefigures, he gives current experience to the promise of the coming one. You read the Psalms, you can see the link between the king and the coming one of God, the Messiah. When David welcomes Mephibosheth, the visible, unavoidable outsider, with his crushed feet who needs help to walk, there is something significant and important going on. This outsider is welcomed in and in a way that cannot be ignored. This isn't a private house. This is the royal palace. This isn't a one-off occasion. This is always. This is no hidden secret act of kindness or even of reparation. It's a public statement of something. And it challenges who is in and who is out. The definition of the people of God all too often and all too easily remains that outlined in Leviticus. Maybe not quite in those terms, but we still have somewhere a definition that those who can come to God are those who are perfect, who are perfect morally for a given definition of moral, who are perfect in belonging to the people for a given definition of belonging, who are approved those who fit in, those who don't challenge, those who don't rock the boat, those who don't look different, those who don't demand extra help or even attention, they're the ones to sit down with because they're the ones amongst whom it is comfortable and amongst whom we can seek honor. And the lawyers and the Pharisees are worried about what Jesus says because he appears not to care. Not to care about what their world is built on, what their sense of themselves or their sense of God is built on. And the host is disturbed by Jesus because he appears not to care not to care about keeping the table safe with all the stuff about letting anybody in. It's not that he doesn't care. He cares passionately. He cares enough to die for it. He cares that the patterns of honor that depend on the mutual regard of the powerful, on competition and exclusion, are destructive. He cares that the table is not open to those in need, that things are structured so that those who are in power work with others who are in power to maintain the system, inviting those who can invite you back. He cares where we sit and who we sit with. He cares that we sit down freely, without anxiety, without looking over our shoulders and trying to defend our sense of self and a fragile identity rooted in others' judgment. He cares that we find ourselves and our sense of self, our value and our identity in God's loving and secure and unshaming gaze. And he cares too who we sit with. To be at the table where God is the host, which is what Jesus is describing here, is to associate with those who are shaming and so are shamed in the gaze of the mirroring world. 
Shame is contagious, just like honour is. We see it today in the so-called honour killings. A woman killed because her behaviour brings shame on the family. It's not her shame that's the point. It's the bringing of shame on the significant and more powerful others in the family. Shame is contagious. And Jesus invites us to a table with those who are regarded as shameful. If I had been allowed to fulfill my invitation, then those who had invited me would have been infected by the shame I carry. And those whose opinion they value would think less of them and they would be diminished and shamed by association with me. If the host were to do what Jesus instructed, there would be no more honour at the table. Those who were honourable would choose not to come because they would be shamed by it. And the host would be dishonoured and lose power and prestige and identity that is given to him by the system. To move away from this mirroring system is not safe. These are the table manners that get Jesus killed not minding where you sit, not minding who you sit with. And it's all very complicated and very airy-fairy and very far away. And we don't get fights into fights like that when we sit at the table. And all that stuff about where our nation should be in the nuclear debates is beyond the reach and the impact of most of us. And my being excluded from taking part in something because I might lower the honour of those involved is not on a par with Jesus' crucifixion. And we can live with it quite happily because actually it makes my life simpler. So is this just one of Ruth's historical reflections and can we go on just as we are? Maybe we understand the history of the passage a bit better. Or does it have actual daily impact for us here and now as the people of God in this place at this time? We're going to sing a hymn, which the first line is, For Everyone Born, A Place at the Table. It's a new hymn to us, but it's a practice we've had for many years. The boards that we had up for reflection on our practice of Sunday lunch were a conversation about how this might happen. We had a meeting a couple of weeks ago about how to make it happen. And next week there's a church meeting and we'll discuss restarting lunch and how we make it a place where everybody is welcome. And my guess is we'll decide to restart. I hope we will decide to restart and continue this form of radical welcome and putting it into practice. But if we take that decision easily, because we've always done this. Or because I like the way it's been done and it makes me comfortable and I get something from it. If that's why we go on doing it, then we are getting it wrong. Because if we are going to go on doing what we do at Sunday lunch, which is so much at the center of the identity of this church, then it has to be on these lines. How do we develop what we are doing? That means we do not feel anxiety about where we sit. That we are not anxious about who is coming in. Literally, what Jesus says here. Not worrying about who we're sitting next to. Not feeling distressed at who comes across the threshold. Not just as a metaphor. Not just as a simple symbol for the other stuff about politics and history and so on, but our identity as a church, our identity as the people of God, trusting in God's gaze to define us, in God's radical hospitality to shape us. And that means this is not an easy decision to take next week. We can come along and we can decide this is a good thing to do, and I hope we do, and we can say yes. But if we're going to say yes, we have to make it happen. We have to make it happen by cooking. 
We have to make it happen by coming. We have to make it happen by welcoming. We have to make it happen by sitting at the table with people we don't know and having conversations that may make us uncomfortable. And we have to make it real. Because otherwise, we might as well not bother. And those who are doing it are going to be left feeling abandoned and unsupported and uncared for. This is not a decision to take easily, and it's not a decision if taken to leave to other people. It's about who we are and who we aspire to be. These words from Jesus about where you sit and who you sit with have all kinds of wide and deep meaning, and they also matter about what we do on a Sunday morning. Does Jesus care about who sits where and who gets to sit down? Well, when it's the table manners of the kingdom, yes, he does. And he calls us to worry about it too. Amen.